creepy and I cannot get it out of my head. That is Tom York's theme from Suspiria making the movie even weirder, even darker and more disturbing than it already is. I think it is at least. Anyway, I'm Christy and who else is here today? This is What the Flick After Dark. Ben, you're here. Uh, What's going on, guys? Ben's here. And uh, who else is here? Alonzo's Hi. here. Hi. Um, it's very late. It's after 8 o'clock on a Thursday. We've never <laughs> sat at my dining room table in the dark before. No. I mean, like, we have lights on, but it's dark outside. And eight, people should, who are not from Los Angeles should understand, 8 o'clock in Los Angeles is like uh, 11.30 everywhere else. <laughs> yes, it's bedtime. It is uh, strange that this uh, city, the home uh, where magic happens... Uh, that all of a sudden that this town closes down as early as it does. They roll up the sidewalks. Yes. Standard time is coming, and so does gloom and doom, which is impressive and relevant for our purposes here, (laughs) talking about Suspiria. We've got a lot of movies to talk about. We might even do a sneak peek at Bohemian Rhapsody, possibly. Should we do that? Yes, yes. Because, Ben, do we not have you next week? Uh, No, you don't have me next week, so so let's uh, let's do it. Let's do it now. Let's do it now. Okay, so um, should we start with Suspiria? Sure. Do you want to describe it since you have strong feelings about the Suspiria remake? Don't call it a remake. Sure. Uh, Yeah, so it's a remake of the Dario Argento 1977 uh, Giallo classic and um, directed by Luca Guadagnino, who's previous work I've liked a great deal but I don't like this one um, and it is it is set in 1977 which is when the first film came out uh, it's about a dance academy in uh, Berlin that may be hiding a coven of witches and uh, Dakota Johnson plays a young woman who's been raised a Mennonite but has dreamed her whole life to go dance with this company uh, it's as if they were fated to be together. And the dance instructor is played by Tilda Swinton, who plays at least one other role in the film as well. And um, it's not scary, and it's boring, and it's <laughs> overplayed, and the political subtext means nothing. And I started laughing during the big bloody finale, and I just thought it was rotten. So the first time I saw it, I was like, what the hell am I watching? Right. Right. And I will acknowledge the first time I saw it, I saw it on a screener for awards consideration. And that is really not the ideal way to see Suspiria because say what you will about this film, (laughs) say what you will about this film. It is beautiful to look at. It's the same cinematographer from call me by your name. Mm. 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 It's, it's, it's moody and atmospheric, and that must be experienced ideally on a big screen. They are Can we sho- acknowledge they, that? They are shooting for, like, there's a lot of Fassbinder in this movie, you know, mm. because it's yeah. 70s, 70s Germany. Berlin, yes. And, like, Fassbinder's, like, he, you know, he was married, as it turns out, and the woman he was married to is in this movie. And they are going for that level of sort of kitchen sink miserableism <sighs> in a lot of ways, which is an interesting idea for a horror movie. But, again, there's a lot of interesting ideas here that don't come to fruition, and I found these sort of like half grimness, half phantasmagoria of it sort of uninvolving. So I will agree with you that the political subtext never connects. I mean, this movie is two and a half hours long and it, it, longer. it, it, it deviates. It, it felt longer for your body. No, no, but it's like 240. Like no, it's, it's not. Yes. It's like 232. Uh, you talk. We're going to look it up. Um, but <laughs> it, it is it is very different from the Dario Argento original in that it, they share a title and a setting and a premise and some character names, but that's really it. This this tries in ways that the first film 
did not even begin to. Okay, you're right. It's two thirty. Ding, ding, ding. Thank you so much. It's you're, like four. It's only, only two thirty. You're all here on record <laughs> that Alonzo said I was right. So um, it tries to connect with what is happening politically yes. in Berlin at this point in time. The city is still recovering from World War II and from Nazism, and the yeah. city is still split in two, and these attacks are going on with the, the Badr-Meinhof yeah. leftist group, and it's trying to say something about the inability to escape the horrors of your past and your guilt and your shame are not enough, and that is completely unnecessary, because the whole idea of like a German dance academy that's like secretly a front for witches is is cool enough. <laughs> and Tilda Swinton as the choreographer is cool enough. And the tension between her and Dakota Johnson is is and just the two of them staring at each other in like drapey seventies period garb with their psychic connection piercing the cigarette smoke. Like that all of that I dig. Like the mood of that is enough. You know and it, it never really works when they try to place it in that larger historical context. Yeah, no, agreed. And there is an early scene the first time that Dakota Johnson died at the academy and you see how her movements are affecting somebody in another room i was like "Ooh, that's creepy that's a cool idea and then it never really does anything that interesting again and the dance becomes more and more ridiculous until we get the big performance of their big their signature piece. piece their signature piece volk you yes. know the people performing performed for the final time exactly yeah. and it's ridiculous like I, I in my review in the rap i said that it's right up there with like the goddess show in showgirls it's not that bad of like embarrassing dance numbers because you've got and the, and they're all wearing these like japanese rope bondage inspired like you know tops over Big white granny panties. Yeah, it's like they're wearing like, red vines. It's like they took like giant. Like they, like they went to Costco and they got like a big bulk size of red vines and like made bikini tops out of them. That's the Project <laughs> Runway challenge. Like a Twizzler's going to come down and make them giggle. So no. So let me go back to what I was saying at the beginning. That the first time I saw it, I saw it on a screener, and then I saw it on the big screen, mm. and. I was so enveloped in the mood and the look of it and the, the Tom York score is a long way to creating that sense of unease from the very beginning. And the I don't think it's a secret to say who Tilda Swinton also is in this movie. I mean, the world knows. She has acknowledged as True, much yeah. in the New York Times. <laughs> so when you see the, the psychiatrist at the beginning of the film, Dr. Joseph Klemperer, that is also Tilda Swinton in layers of old man makeup. Ben, did you realize that when you were watching it? No, not when I was watching it. Okay. No, in no way when I was watching right, it. Right, so that's good. Yeah, that's right. Yes, and she might be somebody else too. Well, maybe more than one person, but yeah. we'll leave that to be discovered. But it's it's so tense, and Luca is not going for the cheap scares here. He's looking to get under your skin and disturb you deeply, and that is effective through camera angles, through just colors. I mean, for a long time, the only source of color is Dakota Johnson's hair. I mean, it's just bleak and deeply evocative and and there's some stream of consciousness like nightmare imagery that's kind of creepy and so it worked for me for a long time. It did. I I was like, I was excited to see it because yeah. I, I love his films before this one. Me too. I loved I, lo- I loved I Am Love. I loved Bigger Splash. I love, you know, 
I may be second only to Christy Lemire in my love of, of Call Me By Your Name. Yeah. I think all of us put it in our top three. Yeah. Yeah, no question. And so I was like, oh, okay, because here's a guy who is such a sensualist. Like, he makes you smell the right. fruit and, and touch the river. Like, you know, his movies, I've taught his movies when I've taught grad students, like, how to evoke things beyond sight and sound in a movie. And I'm like, oh, and he's doing horror. Oh, that's real. I'm going to feel things and be, you know, it's going to be terrifying. And I just didn't respond to this, and I, I don't get what he's going after, and I just found it monstrously tedious by the end. And um, I, I just think this is a, a big failure on what, his part. What's interesting, though, is like it's a really formative movie for him. Like he has spoken about how influential Suspiria, the original the Argento Suspiria, really. is on him. So that would also give you cause to believe that this is we're really in for something special mm. here. Um, so, I, but, so you felt very differently when you saw it. I did. Uh, the second time. I did, and, and part of that is like letting myself get into the rhythms of it and not being so interested in like what the fuck am I watching? Because mm. <laughs> that's how I felt for a long time. I'm like, wait, there are chapters, and where are we going oh, with yes, this? The chapter, the, the cha- acts, the chapters, so the, pretentious. The, the, but the and titles, that's a word I never use. The chapter titles do sound like the names of Radiohead songs, though. <laughs> like borrowing, taking, and a sliced up pear. <laughs> and there's one with parentheses, like all the floor is darkness. Like mm. that sounds like a song that Tom York wrote for the movie. Epilogue. Oh, yeah, that that that, that that's one of those things. Like you know, my my dad used to do that thing where. You know when you go to like a, a an, an event, like a banquet or or a ceremony or something, and they hand you the program, he would actually like scratch things out as they happened because he just couldn't wait to leave. <laughs> and so it was sort of like, oh god, we're only at scene four. Like right. they told us at the beginning, it's twelve it's scenes six, in an right. epilogue or whatever it is. Yeah, and I was uh, I was just scratching them off in my head every time they would appear on my the screen. Uh, my aunt Josie, for whom my daughter is named, used to wake up in the morning and her. And then would write a list that began with, open your eyes, get out of bed, put your feet on the floor, brush your teeth. So she'd get out of the bathroom. She'd look at this. I've accomplished six things today. It is a good I'm feeling. I'm crushing today. Yeah, I like to do pick up Nick. I can remind myself to get my kid from school. People, people I know who didn't like four weddings and a funeral said they were checking them off in their head as they went uh, along. I like that movie. Um, but yeah, so I just, I was very, very let down by this. And, and, um, and I did see it on the big screen. I saw it, you know, at, at, on the Culver lot, but. Yeah, I just, you know, and, and it's it's clearly, it's this year's mother in terms of, like, people yes. seem to love it or the, hate it. Definitely you know? the exactly how I felt leaving it, that there was, that there was a mother-like quality. Except that I liked how, mother. <laughs> how so? What is mother-like about it? I agree, but why? Well, because it's clearly going to provoke some fairly strong reactions. It's hard to imagine people being, other than me, um, uh, people being uh, indifferent to it. And I don't mean indifferent sort of negatively, but sort of in the middle on it. Yeah, right? you don't walk out going, eh. Right, yeah, right. You're you're likely to have a strong opinion about it, and I had both opinions uh, about it, sort of through. Because what you, many of the things you say about it, Christy, are undeniably so. It is, uh, it is, it is dramatic to look at, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it assaults you in many different ways. Uh, but it is also true that it is uh, two and a half hours, and it, it has a lot of self-conscious symbolism modern dance and witchcraft Mm -hmm. which are not ways to bring people like me into a movie (laughs) in in general um so uh, i struggled with uh parts of it no no question um uh but you know then also uh you know tilda swinton is a remarkable performer in no matter what she does and i thought everybody here was 
was pretty good. I mean, that's not your complaint, is that, all oh, Dakota Johnson didn't carry her weight. No, it's, right. it's the movie just doesn't give them things to actually play. Oh, and, it totally does. And I, I felt like they were, they, were, they were game and they were giving it their best shot, but there was nothing to walk away from thinking like, wow, they nailed that. You know? No, Dakota has this massive arc and she kind of keeps you guessing because if she comes in as like, you know, Susie is a young girl from the Midwest mm. and all she wants to do is dance and you think she's super innocent at the beginning but perhaps she was not necessarily as innocent at the beginning as she reveals herself to be in time i think it's a totally different kind of susie than the argento original where she really was innocent and wide-eyed and perhaps there's more going on with dakota johnson's susie but there's more she's not as innocent i don't think but it's so mired in all the crap of this movie that it it just didn't pop for me frankly i preferred her her performance in Bad Times at the El Royale, <laughs> which is not nearly as ambitious a film, but I think that, that Johnson is very, like, emotionally direct in that movie in an interesting way. And you come to find out things about her along the way that you didn't know early on either. I think that the, the, the setting and the fact that we're in the middle of this sort of, you know, militant left-wing uprising in, in West Germany... Um, that you know, you're there's the Luft the the Bader Meinhof group uh, hijacked the Lufthansa jet very famously in 1977, and that's sort of playing out on the television and in the streets. The reaction to it in the streets uh, as the movie goes on, and I I ne- I, I must say I, I didn't never quite understood why that was happening. Yeah. As you said, Christy, that it seemed. What's it, the payoff? It, what, what was there was no to me payoff on that. There was merely a numbers. Uh, revelation for me on that, which was that we're all basically the same age. I think Alonzo and I are almost exactly the same age. Christy, you're a few years younger. I'm right? several years younger. Christy's several. <laughs> so Christy's far younger. Babe in the world. Christy's in her 30s. And, but in 1977, I was 10. Is that also for you? Mm-hmm. Right. So we both turned 10, Alonzo and I, in 1977. And that was only 32 years after World War II. I imagine for you, it was the case for me. My father was a veteran, fought in World War II, um, you know, uh, uh, was at the Battle of the Bulge and, you know, uh, got a Bronze Star and a combat infantry badge. It was a big part of his life. But I never for a second felt even remotely connected to World War II, right? It was like it might have, it was, it was the same as World War I. It was the same as the Civil War. Sure. It was in a different era. And 1977 was 42 years ago. <laughs> Right, forty-one years ago now. So, I just I am I I was interested that of especially in Germany, but really anywhere it should be certainly any country that fought in it as we did. That nineteen seventy-seven was far closer to the mid to the fifties and the nineteen forties than we give it credit for. Mm. Right, because I still think of it as well. I was alive, so it was the modern <laughs> it was modern times. Uh, and, yeah, and we all drove cars and everything was fine and it was rosy and the Russians were our enemy. But it was really, oh, you know, if you were 50 years old, the same age that we are now in right. 1977, World War II was the defining moment of your life. Right. Odds are. I feel like Luca Guadagnino is about your guy's age. I believe so. I think yeah. he is. But very infrequently, though, does the, the tumult in the streets actually connect to what is happening in the dance no, company? It never does. Other than, well, there's one, one moment when Tilda, as the psychiatrist, is talking to a detective who's investigating 
Orkanda investigating the witch's <laughs> coven, and he and he says to him, "We've met before. You helped me find my wife." And there's like a a, a moment of pathos right, there in 1943. Right. Although I, I oddly, and this is a very minor criticism, I thought that that actor looked far too young to have been a working policeman. 34 years mm. earlier. So it took you out of it. To, it took me to out of it. I like that guy looks like he's in his 40s. Yeah. He was helped to find his wife and he was 12 at the time. I mean, and, and all of this just kind of boils down to the fact that this is this is the year the original Suspiria came out, you know. And what it reminded me of, and I talked about this in my review as well, is do you remember that terrible Jonathan Demme remake of Charade yes. called The Trouble with Charlie? Oh, yeah, right. So the big idea he had for that movie was that when... when Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant were making that movie in Paris in the early 60s that just around the corner from them, the French New Wave was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, and Godard and Truffaut and Jacques Rivette and whoever were running around with little handheld cameras while this big Hollywood movie was being made. So his notion of remaking Charade was, let me put some New Wave stank on it. Let me give like, I'll have an Anna Karina cameo and I'll play with the editing and blah, blah, blah. It didn't mean anything. It didn't do anything. It didn't make the movie any more interesting. And that, to me, felt like what Luca Guadagnino is doing with 1977 here. It's like, oh, well, that's when the original movie came out. So when they were shooting this movie in Germany, all this other shit was happening at the same time. Isn't that fascinating? And, well, no, it's not, unless you find some way to make it work into the narrative, which they never do. It's ambitious. I will give it that. It's messy and ambitious. But at the same time, though, there is stuff that is, like, so precise technically that I was just dazzled by it. There's one long pan where it pans around the dining room and the kitchen of the academy. And with each turn it makes, more food is on the table and more people show up. And it's just like this effortless kind of seamless scene setting of establishing here is part of life at the academy you know and, and it's, I was kind of wowed by that the, the cross cutting with you were talking about earlier when Dakota Johnson first dances the, the, the lead role mm-hmm. and you see what happens to the other person who's her movements affect like technically it is really dazzling and that's what impressed me when I yeah, saw it again I, on the big I mean, screen I will certainly grant this movie is not sloppy and everything <laughs> that's in it Guadagnino wanted it to be there I just don't think it means anything, and I don't think it works for what he's going for. I also want to hang out with the witches. They seem like fun. I wanted to know more about them. Like, <laughs> I, I, you know, you've got people like... Uh, Ingrid Coven. Yeah, like not Barbara Sokova, but, but you know, like Renee Sutendick mm-hmm. from, from like the old, you know, Verhoeven movies, and Alec Weck, mm-hmm. like these really interesting looking women, and they're nothing. They, they're, they are maybe visual presences, and that's about it. They're I like a, partying. There's a vote in the movie. I like a roll call vote in a film, and I enjoyed that scene. And yes. it matters. It Just comes like up. It does. It does. It matters. It comes right. up at the yeah. end, because you don't know as part of the mystery, what is this vote who is voting for whom and then at the end you find out why those votes matter there's going to be a very small percentage of people who did what i did during that which was keep score and i was (laughs) when they wrapped it up i'm like that's (laughs) 10-7 anyway i dug it but you're right alonzo it's definitely not for everyone i look forward to the inevitable f cinema score that it will get along with mother got that it doesn't deserve that though it's not even that interesting like F's are sure are for films like Solaris and The Box and Mother that I think are like are genuinely doing something new. This just feels like a mishmash of ideas that don't land. But a lot of people are going to walk out of there going, "What the hell did I just see?" Oh, you undoubtedly. Know, in, those, in his three prior movies and the one that I've seen, uh, "Call Me by Your Name," but as you were telling me about uh, uh, the other Guadagnino movies, he um, 
like they're so filled with, and this is, I guess, a very simple and obvious thing to say, but they're so filled with humanity, right? You were just experiencing, and and and, in, and at least certainly in Call Me by Your Name's case, uh, you know, uh, for many people, uh, a type of a version of humanity that you haven't experienced, right? And so you connect, and you and because you're able to connect with it, then you feel like you've grown just by watching the movie. And there's none of that here, right? These are not really, to me, uh, identifiable people. I don't think he makes any effort to make them. I think he would he would consider them, with the exception of the psychiatrist. Uh, mm-hmm. There isn't a great deal of identifiable human characteristics yeah. to these people. No, it is there's not, as... It's not, he there's no effort made. He doesn't care. That's not what this is about. It's a different kind of movie. It is as yeah. stern and as severe as Call Me By Your Name is warm and welcoming and joyous, and, and his other films are rapturous. And Yeah, it's, it's a different kind of movie, and I like the ambition of that, too. So um, I look forward to hearing about your discussion with him, Ben, because on Saturday night, Ben is going to do a Q&A with Luca Guadagnino and maybe Tilda Swinton and maybe uh, Dakota Johnson. Uh, yeah, I don't... Uh, I can't remember who's coming, but it's it's at the Academy. It's the Academy. So, uh, I look so, forward to hearing well, about and, that. And, I mean, throughout the year, the Academy does, like, opening weekend screenings with the talent and that kind of thing for members as a way to, like... Stoke the the voting membership. It is awards, yeah, especially season. especially uh, now at this uh, this time of year. It's awards, mm-hmm. yeah. So you'll have to find out all these things from him, Ben, and please come report back. Yeah, to it's us. definitely a movie that you're eager to talk to the director about. There's no question. I mean, you you, you I got <laughs> or I, throw something at the director. <laughs> yeah, but even you, I mean, you're curious. Like you, I mean, if, if, if I, yeah, I could see maybe having a sit down. Like seriously, dude, what the fuck was that? <laughs> oh, well, there, there's my first question. There you go. Yeah, no. <laughs> Um, so what are our numbers? I'm saying 7.9. I am very high on this compared to you guys. I said three and a half. I, I, I was very, very disappointed. Uh, I said 6.2, and uh, we're at a 5.9. Thank you for doing math upside down for me. Okay, so uh, you guys have to let us know what you think, because I'm sure you will all have very strong opinions of your own when you see Suspiria, and you should see Suspiria. Yeah, I would say you should see it. It's, uh, it's, uh, it is, you've, you, when you leave Suspiria, you will have seen a film. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Let's, let's do an early look at Bohemian Rhapsody because we are all in the room and we have all seen it. Alonzo or Ben, you describe it because you've seen it. Ben, tell us about Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is a uh, musical biopic of Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Perhaps you've heard of him. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and it uh, takes him from his. Uh, I guess he's a, is he a teenager? He's certainly a young man living at home of uh, Pakistani descent. No, yeah. no, not no, no. no Zo, Zo, Zoroastrian, Zoroastrian, Parsi descent. specifically. Parsi, that's right. Uh, Parsi. but living in London. So Parsi, it is Parsi. With Parsi, a P, excuse yeah. me. But right. people call him a Paki as a people as a call slur. That, yes, that's, that's how the British are. Right? That's how they're right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it is. Uh, but he's lived in uh, London, and he wants to think of himself as a London. Hence the name change, because that is not his real name. Um, and uh, but you see very early a great uh, a shot of his disapproving father, who wants him to, you know, uh, do good things in life, but clearly would like his son to go to medical school or something, or just get a normal job. Uh, but there's a great shot early on of his father uh, in their house, his disapproving father, with the with a, uh, the photo of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, over the right shoulder, uh, our first uh, the, the first idea that maybe this band is going to be called Queen, um, uh, and then it sort of follows uh, Freddie's development to, to uh, forming the band, to stumbling across the guys uh, who would uh, then become the band because they had lost their lead singer, and he's got uh, uh, balls and charm and creativity, and 
uh, and it is a, it's Queen's origin story and pretty much takes us through the entire genesis of Queen. This is a total paint-by-numbers biopic. Also, from what I'm hearing, completely fictional from, start, oh. from stem to stern. As far as, like, the origin of certain songs? Because each important song gets an origin story. Right. Well, that's, my, that's one of my favorite stuff in the movie. That, that much I don't know. But as far as, like, actual events as they transpire... Totally. Like, uh, as, as somebody I know said, pretty much if you can see it on screen, it's fictional. <laughs> That's really funny. So th- this is such a, a cliche-addled music biopic. It literally begins with the big comeback concert. It begins backstage at the big comeback concert and then flashes back to the beginning of the band. They did this in Walk Hard. Yes. And even in Walk Hard, 11 years ago, it was a total cliche to structure your narrative like oh. This. You want a cliche? You know, this, you know. You remember the very first thing that happens in this movie? Freddie Mercury, car, who is HIV right? positive, oh right, coughs. That's right. He wakes up and he coughs. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, oh brother. Uh, here's the thing: this this movie is thoroughly entertaining without being remotely good. But <laughs> I still have. I I had to give it a fresh, but I gave it the lowest fresh I could. Yeah, because. It's garbage. I mean, like, it, it, I mean, it makes it, the, the, the storytelling is, is. You're right. It's so hackneyed and by the numbers. I mean, and yes, they they don't make they didn't straight wash Freddie Mercury as much as that first trailer suggested they might. But it is generally a like sex negative movie where once he leaves the sort of heteronormative relationship, it's all like you know, boozy, anonymous, smoky back rooms and that kind of thing. They create a gay villain from whole cloth. This oh, guy, that's not... That's that guy's not real? No, he, he, does, he does exist, and he was a manager, and he was sort of involved with, like, Freddie's stuff. But, like, Freddie's first solo album came out the same year as Live Aid. The band toured two months before Live Aid. So the whole oh. thing in the movie where he drives a wedge between Freddie and the band, and then they have to reconcile in time for Live Aid, all made up. Yeah, and, oh, then, and, and then they, in an effort to sort of get out of the 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 pickle that they had, uh, 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 the the problem that they had created, right, with the idea that oh, it was great when he was with a girl, and then as soon as they <laughs> broke up, then his life went to crap. Um, because he was so gay. He wasn't just gay. He was so gay. But then they are like, okay, well, it's not gay people aren't all bad. Look, he has a lovely, sweet relationship here at the end with this guy who who actually, who was the kind of gay person who actually had the audacity to say, hey, don't grab my ass. I'm working, right? And gay people normally love that kind of shit. Um, so, you know he's one of the good ones. Right, exactly. So, and, and that was just so, he may have, it appears that he did have a, a very nice relationship at the end, but the, in the movie, it just feels added on and oh. stuck in at the end. Like, literally, they start the relationship on the, on the day of Live day Aid. Of so live so, so he goes many and picks plot him points up. get yeah. resolved on the car, in the, the car, car yeah, on the way yeah. to Wembley. It's like, wow. I'm like, wow, like, how late are you guys playing? It's written, like the- it's, it's, it's written by the guy who wrote The Darkest Hour and uh, The Theory of Everything. But, so. um, however, that said, when they, and I'm like rolling my eyes, really the guy's, and he, good, good thing he was home, and really, and then, because right. then you read, and they had a six-year relationship. The last yeah, six which years began are, before Freddie Sarah converted. Did, of course, it began earlier. It definitely didn't begin on the day of Live Aid. Um, it's a very and, big day. And, and so oh. I was so annoyed by that, right? But that it was just sort of re- it was resolving itself the way you sort of thought movies don't resolve themselves this way anymore. We've moved beyond it. But then, then we're at Live Aid, 
and then it gets really fun. Like, yeah. and, then, and then it's like, oh, right. Queen, <laughs> right? The, the yeah. Live Aid segment is so great that's that it right, made yeah. me forgive so much of that's the movie. Right, it's right. like how Purple Rain is admittedly kind of a terrible movie. It is, but, however, <laughs> but that concert at the end is so great yeah. that you just you leave the theater energized. And I had the same feeling where like they get to Live Aid, and I was like I was brought to tears by Radio Gaga, which right. is one of the worst songs ever written by anybody. <laughs> and um, you know, and and it's and, and it and I it, when it's about the music. This movie is interesting. Like when they talk about here's what here's all the things that went into making Bohemian Rhapsody. Here is why we thought why we wanted to give the crowd something to do yeah, for We right. Will Rock You. Here's the how the baseline of another one by Sadus convinced us to make the song. Even if that's all made up. I was too, gonna say, isn't that all bullshit? Didn't I, you just say that? I don't, it probably is, but it's presented <laughs> so excitingly in the movie and there's and because there's no people's lives at stake, it's just like here's where this pop song came from. Great. Fine. And there, and there's like no struggle. In the band for a long time, it's like, hey, here's a magical song that's just gonna appear to us out of nowhere. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah and and but like, w- whether it's specifically true or not, uh, um, uh, Mike Myers plays a, oh, a radio yeah, executive, right? A big uh, executive who wants them to release a song, I think, called "I Love My Car" right. as the number one sing- as the single off Bohemian Rhapsody and for, for Fred- Night of the Opera. Night of the Opera, sorry, the, the album, and they want to release Bohemian Rhapsody. They want, and which is six minutes long, and this is whatever year that was, seventy nine or eighty, or uh, I don't know, seventy four. Okay, seventy four. Yeah, even more so. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the, there was that. There was a, a there were rules they, about pop songs. They're three minutes long. Like you could maybe get three twenty, but that's all <laughs> you could get. And so they they have that argument, and that's almost certainly some version of that argument took place probably over with many people many times, and they break it down. But like that was interesting. Like, I like them fighting, uh, quitting, trying to walk out on their contract. You got the producer, Mike Myers, saying, you know, it's a contract's ironclad. The way that um, the way that their manager and lawyer sort of stood up for them, like, yeah, I'm actually going to go with the band on this one, that we're going to trust the artist that they know. And, and, and that, that passionate plea to, no, release this song, we know. We know it. People will love it. They will say it. They will sing it. That that that's when to me it's fun. And I'm not. I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm not going to give it away. But the the, 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 the punchline. Of, oh no no. Well, hang on. There's two punchlines. <laughs> the, the good punchline at the very end of that sequence is great and arguably the movie's most honest moment. The other punchline that is terrible, which is that. You, you've cast the guy from Wayne's World in yes. this movie, and he says... He's talking about what a terrible song Bohemian Rhapsody is, and no one's going to want to drive around in their car and bang their head and sing along to this song. I like, mi- I to- yeah. I, total I to- hand-holding joke. I, I, and I missed it. Did you know? So that joke was as soon as you. you guys started to say it, I was like, oh my God, how dumb am I? <laughs> I was like, well, well, like it's yeah. not enough to have Mike Myers talking about how terrible Bohemian Rhapsody is. They have to like hold our hands and walk mm. us down that road. Right. I was rolling my eyes. But apparently, maybe not everyone will get that. <laughs> no, so. but, but that said, I missed the whole thing that, that, that it was Mike. I just thought it was Mike Myers. Like, uh, who cares? So Mike Myers wanted to do this. He probably loved it. didn't occur to the Wayne's World part didn't occur to uh, me. But now that you're saying it, like, if you're going to do it, then have that be the joke. You don't need to then hold our hand exactly. on the joke. You don't right. have to like underline it and, right. and you That's know right. italicize we it. We should mention the name Rami Malek at some point. Oh yes, right. <laughs> so Rami Malek, I was hearing all this early buzz about oh this incredible performance and he's just like he becomes Freddie Mercury and he's 
okay. He's, he's good. He's good. He's good in the in the in the singing parts when he's lip syncing Freddie Mercury. When he's doing the on stage sort of presentation, the 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 kind of peacock, you know, sort of flamboyance of Freddie Mercury behind a microphone. He's great. But they give him a dental prosthetic to resemble Freddie Mercury's famous overbite. And he always sounds like they just put it in his mouth right before cameras started rolling. It's like, you know what? Freddie Mercury had those teeth his entire life, and he knew how to talk through them. And Rami Malek is talking like somebody who is wearing vampire fangs. It's a little awkward, and it gets a little more comfortable as the film goes on. Or maybe I just got used to him talking like he had marbles in his mouth. I, I, don't, I don't know, but yeah, that was distracting. But it's amazing the range we have now seen from Rami Malek between... Um, he was like a vampire in the last Twilight movie. <laughs> really? Yeah. Here's how I know that. Here, I'll tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a long Ben Makewood story. Oh, wow. um, Nick's in the background going, oh, brother. <laughs> um, so I went to the Twilight premiere. of. Remember the last, like the second Breaking finale? Two. Were you there that night that they had the big premiere at the Dolby or the Nokia downtown? I, I didn't go to that. I went to like a fan screening. Yes. Anyway, it was like, it was the premiere and it was like they had like red carpet arrivals that they were broadcasting in inside the mm, theater and all yeah. that. So I'm sitting there with a girlfriend of mine and then I have a guy sitting next to me and there's a young man sitting next to him. And the guy next to me says, Hey, my client's in this movie. He's a young actor. You're going to be hearing a lot of, of things from him. And I look over and this young man waves at me like, hi, His name is Rami Malek. He's one of the vampires. <laughs> you got to look for him at the end. And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> that kid's going places. I'm sure But he's had like an interesting no, career between I, I, Mr. Robot and Lost City. Was Lost City of Z? No, it was um, Papillon. Papillon. I'm confusing yes. my Charlie yeah. Hunnam movies. Uh, I remember seeing him in The Master. And, oh, right. And thinking, I got to learn this guy's name. Yeah. Like, that was that moment where I was like, checking the credits. Who is this guy? Rami Malik. Okay, I'm going to remember that. And how do we think he is versus how Sasha Baron Cohen might have been? Because that was the original casting on this. Hard to say. I would imagine Sasha Baron Cohen would be better at having weird dental prosthetics in his mouth. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, people have, people who don't like the film said, oh, it would have been so much better if Sasha Baron Cohen. No, this movie would have been so much better if there weren't two living members of Queen who were, like, ramrodding this thing through as a family-friendly, buy-our-back catalog movie. You they know? are executive producers. Yeah, Brian executive May and producers. Roger Taylor are executive it's producers. A, I mean, it is like three, it's just like a three-part episode behind the music sort of it i mean it and so as far as hitting all the notes but, author, all, but authorized by the music yeah, oh right yeah right right right, right, right. It that's is, right it is very super clean here's, awesome. here's a yes. fun fact the guy who plays deaky the bassist mm-hmm. joseph mazello the kid in jurassic park interesting yeah he still works he, has, he has a consistently, career i looked him up on imdb he's worked like every year since that movie the we t-rex just, did not eat him exactly he we just lives. didn't notice um yeah the the music does a lot of the heavy lifting i like rami malik in this the live aid stuff is thrilling but most of it is just so cliched and so empty and yeah like even like the, the gay bar stuff is like ooh, seedy gay bar Lurid. yeah and he's they're like, wearing leather and they're kissing <laughs> yeah there was just a and there, until the end, there wasn't enough music. There wasn't enough Queen. Um, and 
they, you know, there are a couple of montages, and and I was like, enough with the montage. Just let's see one. I don't need the whole song. Give me two and a half minutes of a full song. Verse and a chorus. Right. Yeah. Give me something and let. And, and so I just didn't think there was an. And then and then we get a bunch of it, uh, but you got to wait and you got to wade through. It's There's, a long movie too. Have you seen the movie? It was co-directed by uh, Nicholas Rogue. His first movie, Performance. No. I need to. It, it, after it aired on TCM, like three different people I know were like, oh my God, I might have never seen this yeah. movie. Uh, Keith Carradine uh-huh. picked it. He was a guest programmer. James uh, Fox is in it. He's Edward Fox's brother. And man, is he ever Edward Fox's brother. <laughs> um, and uh, But it, Mick Jagger's in it. Yeah. And has a significant role in it. And there is a moment in this movie when, you know, around the time when his hair length is right, where I, I think Malik looks so much like that Mick. Oh, wow. Mm. So, I mean, I, my, instinctively, I'm thinking this is not going to be his only musical biopic <laughs> because there's nobody better equipped right now to play Mick Jagger than Robbie Mel. Yeah, I can't defend this movie, but I I really enjoyed most it of it. It feels like you're being a douche to say, I hate, like, you didn't like it. Like, it's, <laughs> it is fun. It is fun. Yeah, at, like, it's entertaining as yeah. hell. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I see plenty of movies that I were just was bored stiff by or whatever. Like, this one, even as I was thinking, that makes no sense, and uh, I bet this didn't happen, I was like, ooh, the, the, the bit of a song I like, and look at that outfit. And I don't know, it just, it, there was enough, <laughs> it had this energy to it that I was like, all right, I damn it, movie, you win. You how, know? how much of a factor do we think it is that there was a directing change in the middle of the film? I mean, Brian uh, Singer was fired as the director of this film, and Dexter Fletcher does not get credit when you go see it. Yeah, he's like listed as an executive producer, but yeah. I guess for reasons only the Directors Guild of America knows, it's still credited to Brian's. I mean, how much of a factor do you think that is in terms of the quality of this film and could it have been better with a clearer, stronger vision or whatever? I, I you know, I think I think it's always going to have been hampered by the fact that you yeah, had right. you had these guys from the band who were like, eh, no, that didn't happen that way. Let's be, let's say this happened, and mm, let's keep it PG thirteen. You know, um, it's very PG thirteen. Although you do, the result is, and I guess it's what they wanted. After the end, you, you know, you wanted to be able to give Freddie Mercury a hug. Like, like you were, like it does make you ultimately, despite the bad behavior in the middle, despite what they suggest was the behavior that sort of potentially ruined Queen, even though as we've just learned, not they, true. That wasn't <laughs> um, you know, he, he, when he comes around, right, and, yeah, and they the get back to sure. yeah, yeah, that, and so you know, and, and obviously somebody who sort of you know struggled for some time in many ways, not just sexuality, with being who he was supposed to be, Mm. you know, when he's able to be who he's supposed to be. And then he recognizes, oh, yes, this is who I'm supposed to be. You are happy for him. But at the end, I also knew exactly how it was going to end. You know, it's going to be that last shot of them standing on stage. You know, it's going to be slow-mo and the audience music and the sounds are going to fade. You're going to have a a big title card saying, Freddie Mercury died of AIDS. Mm -hmm. And it's going to explain everything about this famous person that we just saw two hours plus about. And it's just, it's again, so obvious structurally as somebody like Freddie Mercury who took chances yes. deserves a movie that takes chances. And most biopics don't. And this one really doesn't. It, it doesn't. And it's funny because I saw it right. I saw it in the same week that I saw Stan and Ollie, which we'll talk about when oh, it opens good. in December, which is a movie that is actually really good. Uh, and where you where the where the actors do disappear into the characters, and where it doesn't feel like a lot of hokum, 
Um, but yeah, like this is this is like the weakest possible recommend I can give to a movie, but I still recommend. All right, what's your number? I give it a six point one. Wow, Ben, what's your number? I think I gave it a, a five point five. You did. Yeah. Four point five for me. I'm so our number is a five point four. It's a fifty two percent on the tomato meter. I should mention I forgot to mention the Suspiria number, which is seventy two percent. Which has been going up and down. <laughs> like it, like when the first few like Venice reviews hit, it was at fifty for a while. So I thought, well, that's perfect because uh-huh. this is a movie that people either love or hate. And then it, it was up to like seventy seven a couple days ago, and now it's at seventy two. So yes. by the time this airs, who knows where it will be? Yes. Okay. So Bohemian Rhapsody, we are done with that. Um, ben, do you want to stick around with us for our other ones? I think I should go uh, and perhaps see my uh, child. Go see your child. <sighs> Whatever. I and thought you were committed to sparkle motion. Tell her. <laughs> tell her hello. But we will see you um, not next week but in a couple of weeks yes okay awesome. we're, we're happy to have you here okay bye we're gonna keep talking so um let's do shirkers next yes. uh, i'm happy to describe shirkers okay do you want to pod yourself down ben you're three do you? no no that's me no you're right no, that, i'm yeah. three <laughs> nice try i'm Lemire. one i'm one so you're <laughs> yeah you can't hear me <laughs> Is this me? (laughs) (laughs) We're so high tech here. My my, my sad little soundboard. Um, So Shirkers is this really fascinating documentary that I knew nothing about. I did not know anything at all about Sandy Tan. I now know quite a bit more now that I've done some research. Wait, you've never met her? I've never met her. She is the wife of a colleague of ours. She is, and I'm sure she has been to our awards dinner, and I have never met her no and way. now I can't wait to meet her. Oh, she's a she's a trip. I looked her up on Facebook. I'm like, "Wait, okay, she she's married to John Powers and she lives in Pasadena. We must have a lot of friends in common." Thanks for coming, darling. Bye-bye. See you later. Ben is leaving. Um and we have like 40 friends in common, but I'm I think she's fat and we're, like, we're the same right, age. I was thinking of Ben is back is opening later this year. Yes. <laughs> um so Yeah, no, she's a she's a hoot. I I've, I've known her for ages, but I feel like I, I realized so much that I didn't know about her watching this movie. Right. So this is like like so many fascinating documentaries about movies that went wrong in the making of them. This is one of those, but it's also a mystery about how it went wrong, like what happened there. But it also reminded me a lot of stories we tell in that it, it, it requires this central figure to go back and talk to people from her past mm. and piece together things that happened and question what's real what's just something i think i filmed what's a memory yes you can have a popsicle nicholas go ahead but yeah um, what's the version that i've told myself right versus what I actually and so so when she was a teenager and she's about my age so she was growing up in the 80s in singapore yeah. 80s and 90s and she was obsessed with film and she found ways to get a hold of like really avant-garde music and film and stuff that wasn't necessarily available Bootlegs, on singapore yeah. uh, on singapore and so internet yes and so like before there was ghost world you know <laughs> you had sandy tan and her her best friend like making these really edgy, angry, funny fangirl magazines about the stuff that they liked and they made these movies and they, they shot all this footage and they learned they learned how to make a movie. And it was going to be called Shirkers. And they started hanging out with this much older, like really inappropriately older guy named George Cardona. He was like a film teacher. He was like, he was a film teacher and he was exciting and to her at that age he brought 
the possibility of the outside world with him. And they spent a lot of time together making movies and just driving around and getting inspiration for stuff. And he, you know, turned her on to other influences culturally that also excited her. And he was, he was someone who believed in her and that was, you know, very flattering and very exciting to her. And, you know, he was what in his forties and she was a teenage girl and it was, you know, amorphously inappropriate, but like clearly not an up and up relationship here. And then one day all the footage disappeared Along with George <laughs> and all the money that they took out of their accounts to continue funding this movie. And this is the story of how she went back and revisited her childhood and the making of that film. Yes. And, and it's not a spoiler to say they find the footage and that's sort of what prompts this whole thing. And so she goes back to Singapore and she talks to all of her friends who worked on the movie. She tracks down people from George's life. And, yeah, it's the kind of thing where she's not only sort of trying to piece together this old project of hers, but she's also sort of piecing together her own past and, and you know, having to confront things that she did or that she said or ways that she treated people that, that maybe she had one version of it, but then they think of it in a very different way. Um, so it's this, it's this fascinating kind of memory piece, but it's also a piece about being young and, and just exploding with ideas and wanting to do things and get stuff made. And yeah, I, I love this movie and I, I couldn't review it because I know Sandy, but I, I feel like I know much more about her now that I've seen it. It's very personal and it's very honest. And it's interesting because it's premiering on Netflix. If you have Netflix, you can see it wherever you are. Oh, it's going to cool. be, it'll be showing theatrically in a few cities. Um, but next week on Netflix, we get the love me when I'm dead, which is also a, a documentary about a film that was considered oh. lost and incomplete. Oh, <laughs> the, the Orson, Orson Welles. Welles. Yeah. The other side of the wind. So is, is that coming out the same week as the actual other side of the wind? Yeah. They both drop on November 2nd. Okay. Because I have seen The Other Side of the Wind. Well, we could talk about it. We can talk about that soon-ish. Yes. Um, But yeah, it's it's, it's a fascinating subgenre of of documentary, like the making of the movie gone wrong. And of course, there's the one about Terry Gilliam, Lost in La Mancha. There's so many. Uh, The Wilco one, right? There's a Wilco one. Oh, I don't know. That's the making of their album about how that Uh, went wrong. Overnight. What's Overnight? The guy who made the um, Boondock Saints and how he was supposed to be like the next big thing, and he had a big deal with Weinstein, and then he like oh. ruined it all by being an a hole. <laughs> oh, I don't remember that one. So, um, but she is a really interesting figure, and yeah, you're right. It's it's so specific to her youth and to this place and time in Singapore, but it's also so universal in capturing like teen girl angst yeah. and wanting to be cool and also wanting to be understood mm-hmm. and how those two things are innately in conflict with each other sometimes yeah, wanting, um, to be, wanting to be invisible and wanting to be seen at the same time yeah and yeah. and she she's shy at the beginning of the the early footage of shirkers and then you see her really grow up and come into her own and and she is still making movies now right or is she a journalist uh, no, she, now? she's uh she she's a novelist she wrote a, a novel a few years back okay um and then uh and then she made this film uh, i hope she keeps making movies i want to see even if uh, you know even for films that aren't personal i would love to see what other stories she has to tell yeah and it's the the movie she made the vibe is so surreal it's so like avant-garde and stream of consciousness in a lot of ways. The imagery is, it's a lot of, it reminded me a lot of like early Wes Anderson because there's a lot of stuff mm. with kids doing 
weird things and doing grown-up things, and it feels like it's... And again, we haven't seen how Shirkers actually is cut together, but the pieces of it that we see and the order in which we see them is very random and very inviting but strange. And sadly, the audio is lost, so we'll never really get the complete film. Shirkers is also the name of the movie that she was making. Yeah. Um, uh, In the review that April Wolf wrote for The Wrap, she said, what we see in the film makes it look like a cross between Ghost World and Haosu. Yeah, it's it's got a lot of Ghost World, and it's cool to see how kind of ahead of her time she was because she acknowledges that she saw films in the 90s and early 2000s that reminded her of her own film. Yeah. And there's a cool thing where they cross-cut between her own footage <laughs> and images from Rushmore or right. Ghost World and how... You know, her stuff came first. Yeah, and it's not like she wasn't getting ripped off because no one had seen this movie. But, yeah, she just had the idea. Yeah, and uh, she's really interesting. So now I want to, like, meet her and hang out with her. She seems like a really (laughs) cool chick. She's a who? Yeah, so I'm saying 9.3. Uh, I said nine and a half. I just, you know, I, I, and again, I, I feel weird even reviewing this yeah. movie because I know her. But, uh, you know, if I didn't like it, I would just shut up. So <laughs> I think it's, a, it's an exciting movie. I'm not going to let my friendship with her get in the way of talking about it. I think it's, it, it, I was I was just really engrossed in this story. And, and it sounds like the most indulgent thing in the world. Oh, a filmmaker makes a movie about the movie they made and didn't finish. But there's a whole lot going on here. Yeah, the, it's, it's, it's surprisingly tense because the, the tone of her footage is kind of serene and kind of surreal. But then there's like a mystery and a tension that drives the narrative of yes. this film. Yeah, I know. She, she's hit upon several interesting stories to tell. And just the interviews with like the people who were her friends who worked with her on it who don't give her any slack. Mm. Those are great interviews. Yes, as true friends should not. Exactly. So, yes, 9.3. And so our number is a 9.4. It's at 100% on the tomato meter. So I was not aware that it was going to be on Netflix, and I'm really happy that you told me that because the world can see it then. Yep. Okay, cool. Go watch it. Let's do 1985. Do you want to describe that, Alonzo? Sure. So this is the latest film from Yen Tan. Um, He is a queer Asian filmmaker. He previously did Pit Stop, which premiered at Sundance and a film called Chow. Um, this is a, as the title suggests, it's a period piece. It is a, a Corey Michael Smith from Gotham and the movie Carol. Um, plays a, a guy who uh, lives in New York, works in advertising, goes home to Texas for Christmas. And as we come to realize, he is a gay man in New York City in 1985. And so this is probably going to be his last Christmas. And um, his parents are played by Virginia Madsen and Michael Chiklis. And he's sort of trying to resolve his relationship with them and, and, you know, see them one last time, but still not tell them the truth about his life. He has a younger brother that he sees a lot of himself in and sort of tries to, you know, prepare him for his life ahead for, you know, when he's not going to be there later to give him advice about things. He hangs out with an ex played by Jamie Chung. Um, it's a really powerful period piece um, about, you know, d- dealing with, with AIDS in America. Um, and it's also a very kind of personal family, you know, story set of the holidays. I was going to say, it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> it's a Christmas movie, but it's shot in black and white. Um, you know, I just really great performances. Virginia Madsen is so good in this. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, like, people are going to go gaga for... 
Nicole Kidman in Boy Erased just because her character is so lovely and does and says lovely things. But I think Virginia Madsen is way more interesting in a similar type of role. Right, because these are both gay men who are in conflict with their conservative Christian family. Exactly. Um, Yes, the Nicole Kidman part in Boy Erased, which we will review when it comes out, Mm -hmm. is much showier. Yes. Um, But Virginia Madsen's arc feels really believable. Like where she begins and where she ends up as far as how she feels about things and how she expresses her evolution yeah. to her, her son. Um, the last little bit is kind of heartbreaking. The, mm. the last conversation she has with him. Um, yeah, I I like the fact that it's shot in black and white. And it does not necessarily even just feel like a choice to create nostalgia. It, I mean, it feels like a, a way to... Make us feel intimate with these characters, you yeah. know, and and it's uh, it's not it's not drenched in like eighties nostalgia. It's not like Ready Player One, you no. know, where every other line is some kind of pop culture reference. But the ones that do exist are there for a reason. Like when he's talking to his younger brother about what kind of music he should be listening to. Right. And I think if you take the, I think if you're doing a movie that's set in the mid eighties in Texas, it's easy for it to become sort of like garish and goofy, you know, the kind of the goofy eighties, like you know, Ready Player One kind of thing and if you strip that away then you're able to sort of get more directly into the heart of the story it's it's uh i think it's fort worth i think it is yeah because there's the the best friend the girlfriend lives in dallas oh that's right that's right i want to call out aiden langford who plays the brother he is it's a really great uh juvenile performance and you know the 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 scenes that he and Corey michael smith have together i think are really moving yes it's um it's it sounds like any Eat Your Vegetables movie. And yes, we have two films this week about people with AIDS. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, no, Bohemian Rhapsody, I guess, comes out next week. But right. we're talking about two this week. Um, so it sounds like kind of a, an Eat Your Vegetables kind of topic that would maybe be mawkish or maudlin or yeah. preachy. And this is absolutely not. It's very understated. Even the um, is it a couple of talks that he has with Michael Chiklis as his dad, mm-hmm. and those are very understated. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, the, there was a discussion recently about how it takes about 30 years for the movies to start dealing with really big topics. Like, you know, we didn't really see, apart from like the pawnbroker, you didn't see movies about the Holocaust until the 70s yeah. when like the miniseries happened and then you know the other other people could start sort of telling those stories and so we're i think now reaching that period where we can start doing the movies about what aids was like both in the macro and the micro mm-hmm. and this is very much a micro um it's one you know, person story exactly it's one person story and it's not a deathbed story it is a Getting my affairs in order story, mm-hmm. and 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 very powerful because of that. Because again, there's so much that he isn't ready to say to the people in his family, and they do or don't clue into that to varying degrees. Yes. So, which number? Uh, I said eight point eight. I think this is a really terrific movie. People should go look for it. I'm saying seven point eight. So our number is in eight point three. Mm-hmm. It's at ninety four percent on the tomato meter. And since we are talking about nostalgia, let's just inch forward a little more in time. Jump to ahead the, one decade. Yeah, to the mid nineties. Um, this is also very personal. Mm-hmm. 
also shot in black and white? No, no. It's, in, it's in color. But it's an it aspect. It's in the Academy ratio. Yes, I noticed that. Academy ratio, it's, very it's fancy. Very like almost square. I was like, what's happening? Very fancy, Jonah Hill, in your yeah. directorial debut. Um, so this is not necessarily autobiographical for Jonah Hill. He directed it, he wrote it, but it's inspired by a lot of his childhood yes. and a lot of people that he knew when he was growing up in LA as a skateboarder, as a young skateboarder. And there's um, a figure that I guess is theoretically the Jonah Hill figure. His name is Stevie. He's played by Sonny Suljic. Yes, you can have a banana, Nicholas. Um, it's late here. My kid is still hungry. He needs to go to bed. <laughs> So, um, Sonny Suljic was in Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yes, he and the son. He is in House with a Clock in Its Walls. Right. Um, and he's just a really interesting young actor. He's got a really interesting face and kind of like a boyishness, but also like a world weariness about him. And he is... Um, Living at home with his older brother, played by an unrecognizable Lucas Hedges. Yes. All they had to do was dye his hair and his <laughs> eyebrows, and he's like a whole other person. Yeah, no, it's definitely different from what I've seen before. Although it's funny because I saw it, I went on opening night, and the theater where I went screened the trailers of the two upcoming Lucas Hedges movies before it. Ben is back. Ben is back. And, and um, oh, and Boy Erased. That's so funny. He's yeah. everywhere. So um, so he's the older brother who is very abusive to this kid, and Catherine Waterston is their single mom. And they're living in this sort of like run-down, middle-class L.A., nothing fancy. Yeah. But he Stevie falls in with these kids who are teenagers who aren't that much older than he is but they're old enough to like be closer to manhood and right. so they seem larger than life to him and super cool and they spend their days just like sitting on the couch and just bullshitting with each other and they and hang out at the skateboard shop and um so stevie gets his first skateboard and tries everything he can to hang out with them and they kind of let him be their mascot and he kind of grows up and it is a coming of age film in every way um it is really evocative of a place in time and down to the clothes and the music choices jonah hill loves hip-hop and so he wrote scenes with specific songs in mind Hmm. so it's everything from like the pixies and nirvana to wu-tang clan and a tribe called quest like it's very much this mid-90s era musically but then also like there's a great scene where the, uh, the there's this crowded park, you know, where the skaters aren't supposed to be, but they're all skating anyway. And the cops show up, and they all run off in different directions and scatter. And this Philip Glass piece plays, <laughs> and it's a beautiful moment. And it's an it's an interesting musical choice because it's totally at odds with the sort of the pop music that we've been hearing for the rest of the film. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of coming of age film because you've got this guy who is not getting any attention at home, and so he's hanging out with these older teens who teach him how to skateboard, but also teach him like all the worst things about like how to talk to women and how to like you know booze and drugs and stuff you know um but it's, it's realistic in that way no no, no absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah i mean i totally bought it i wish the katherine waterson character had been drawn a little bit better mm-hmm. just to have some idea of how good or bad a mom she is i wasn't entirely clear she's kind of absent and like kind of always harried like she's doing yeah. her best but yeah, she's like, not very plugged into what's going on yeah, yeah like there's a scene with lucas hedges where you find out that she used to be a much worse mom but like beyond that i, I still felt like I, I wanted to know and it's funny I, I didn't think about this until just this moment and maybe this is a dumb thing but i you know did you see jonah hill on ellen no. He showed this picture of like himself now. It was a Photoshop thing with his arms around himself at like 14. And he was a 
that kid at 14. Well, he was heavy and super bad. Right, yeah, right? yeah. No, in the early films, yeah. like, his, his weight has fluctuated uh-huh. as an adult we've seen over the course of movies. But like he was a, he was a, a pretty you know, hefty kid. And I kind of, now I'm thinking, I wish he could have made a movie about a hefty kid. Mm-hmm. Like, instead, no, he's got to be, like, you know, cute and athletic and whatever. This and movie's like, very cool. It's a cool movie. It is a cool movie. Yeah. And I like mm-hmm. it. And I think there's a lot. But I, it just, that just popped in my head. Like, wouldn't it, what would, it, what would that movie have looked like if he had allowed himself to love himself as a fat kid to make a movie about a fat kid? Yeah. Sonny Soljic is, like, elfin and adorable. Yeah. yeah. Um, the supporting cast in this is really interesting. And I got to do a Q&A with a bunch of them oh, last really? weekend at the Landmark. I talked to Sonny Soljic. I talked to... Um, to Olin Pranat, who plays fuck shit. He's really good. He is he is that guy. He's just got like charisma oozing out of his pores, mm. out of his magnificent curls. <laughs> He's just charming as can be. And uh, Gio Galicia, who is Ruben, who is the kid who's just a little bit yeah, slightly yeah. older than him, who gives him a lot of the worst advice that he gets. Yes. Like, never say thank you, dude. Never thank anybody. That's, That's lame. Gay. Yes. And then um, also Ryder McLaughlin, who plays fourth grade, who is, you know, not the smartest guy among them, <laughs> but he's the one who's shooting all this stuff on his little handheld camcorder right. and whose footage makes up the little movie at the end. Yeah. My main complaint about this movie is that it just kind of ends. It's really abrupt, and it there's some dramatic stuff that happens toward the end that doesn't really get answered, and then I, it just ends. I think it reaches an emotional climax. Okay. You're okay with the way it ends? The, yeah. The, there's a moment between the mom and the friends mm-hmm. that I felt like that was the sort of emotional climax of the film. Okay. And so I was okay with it sort of stopping after okay. that. It's a, it's a brisk 84 minutes. It is, yeah, it's really quick. Um, yeah. But these kids were really lovely. And yeah, and Nikel Smith, too. Is, and, yes, is were Ray. all like either amateur or pro skateboarders, right? None of them are actors. I think Nikel Smith is actually a skateboarder. But the other guys... None of them had ever acted before. Like, Sonny Suljic is is very accomplished at this point at age 13. But the other guys were just random guys that were brought in for an audition. And um, they wanted people who could actually skate. Hmm. These guys just live here. One of the questions from the audience was somebody who had seen Olin Pernat skating at a skate park in L.A. And, like, asked him a question about where he likes to skate. So these are very much, like, amateur people who in the last year have really had their lives kind of turned uh-huh. upside down and like now they all want to act and they're all very charismatic in in their own individual ways they are all drawn very specifically yes. the supporting players no it's are. a very charming ensemble and also he's working with the cinematographer who did Meek's Cutoff yeah he works I'm, I'm blanking on the Christopher name Christopher Blavo right he, he works with Kelly Riker yeah so it's it's got a dreamy kind of feel about it, not unlike Skate Kitchen, which we True. talked about. It's got a dreamy kind of feel about the afternoons of hanging with your tribe. There's a scene yeah. that they show a couple different times of them like kind of weaving in and out of the turn lane on a busy street in L.A. Long and like downhill street. Yeah, yeah, the sun's kind of setting behind them, and it's, it's it does evoke that sense of like finding your place in a, in a thing that is inherently rebellious, yeah. finding a, a warmth within it. Like, of the two movies, I probably like Skate Kitchen better. Me but too. I think they're both worth seeing. Yes. So I'm saying seven. Uh, I said 7.2. Okay. I, I think there's, you know, he avoids, there are some sort of first film traps he falls into, but I think mostly he avoids them. And, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think this, this is a good movie. I mean, he, I, I read a whole Q&A with him where he, you know, he has worked with the masters at this point, you know, and, sure, yeah. and he's learned 
he's made like 60 films. He's learned from all of them. Wow, really? Yeah. yeah. Already? He's made 60 films. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing him in um, Accepted, and I'd never seen oh. him before. That was the first movie I'd seen him in. Not Was he in 40-Year-Old Virgin? This is, be- this is before that. Okay. Accepted yeah. was that movie with, with um, Justin Long, where oh. it's all these people who didn't get into college, so they sort of make up a fake college. Yes, I remember that. I forgot he was in that. Yeah, yeah. so he, he's been around for a long time. I guess yeah. he's been he's been learning on the job, and yeah, it, it feels very intimate and very personal. Um, yeah. <laughs> so clearly, he didn't have to learn that much from Judd Apatow if he made an eighty-four minute. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> he learned what not to do. Yes. I appreciate that. So yeah, our number is seven point one. It's at seventy-eight percent on the tomato meter, and um, it opened in New York and LA last weekend, and I suspect that it is kind of trickling out. Yes. To the A24 world. is putting it out. Yes. So um, to recap on our long, long show tonight, um, Ben was here. If you just tuned in, you missed Ben. Um, so Suspiria, we are giving a 5.9. No thanks to Alonzo. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody gets a 5.4. Shirkers gets a 9.4. 1985 is a 8.3. And mid-90s gets a 7.1. Um, so a very mixed bag for you. Next week, Alonzo's not here. Well, but oh yeah, we're we gonna tape, tape on. Early, yeah. We're gonna, we might have a special Halloween edition of uh, of the What the Flake podcast. So yes, stick I, with us. I have, I have a work thing, but if we can if we can do this on Halloween, we can talk about. I think it. we can. The Orson Welles movies and whatever else besides Bohemian Rhapsody that's opening next week. That Nutcracker movie. Oh yeah, that screens next Tuesday night. I'm, I'm, I'm going to the premiere on Monday. Aren't you fancy? Well, I, I if I could avoid it, I would go to. The, <laughs> Tuesday, but that's when I tape who shot you. Yes. So So we will have a lot for you next week, too. And uh, yes, and things are churning along. Yes. (laughs) There is a a long game here. Uh, We won't always be living at ChristyLemire.com, but at the moment we are. And if you put ChristyLemire.com slash feed into your podcast catcher, it will automatically send it there. Uh, That's so interesting. We, so even though we're not on, like, you know, we don't have an RSS. Well, maybe, maybe that is the RSS. But we're not on Apple Podcasts or whatever yet. But if you, I entered that email address in or that URL into my Apple Podcasts, and now it shows up. That's good to know. And then there is a guy named Tom who every week on my website, if you go into the comments on my website, he takes it and makes it like a user-friendly link to, like, make it an MP3. Yeah. So, I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but it looks helpful. <laughs> but Tom does. <laughs> anyway, we, we appreciate your patience. And thank you for all the kind words and everybody who's been popping up on Twitter to say, hey, I've been checking your your old YouTube feed. Where have y'all been? Uh, and who have followed us this far. We appreciate it. We've been at my dining room table. All right. Thanks, you guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.